That's not a knife. That's a knife. This week, the EPS has been given a shove towards further accountability, but only a small one. Did they have a knife? Plus, the solar rebate has run out, and so too, it seems, has Council's delight in funding and poverty Edmonton. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 191. I remember in the after show of last week's episode, you had mentioned Council's on break next week. I don't know if we'll have anything to talk about. And lo and behold, (laughs) we've got stuff to talk about. Oh, always something going on in municipal politics. But we won't talk about it until after the rapid fire segment. Edmonton's plan for anaerobic trash digestion has not yet turned the promised profit, but city councillors have a plan to simply ask another round of questions on it, thereby using up the remaining oxygen in the room and optimizing the anaerobic reaction. Flustered scientists attempting to correct the plan were unable to weigh in as the meeting, already with excess items on the agenda, had to end precisely at 9.30. A local Infinity car dealership has modified their parking lot in an art installation designed to show the effect their cars have on their owner's lifestyle. Four cars were spotted in a sinkhole in the South Edmonton car dealership's parking lot Tuesday morning, leading to many shares and excitement on social media. However, employees at the dealership say that any Edmontonian can bring a sinkhole home with them. Any new car purchase guarantees a near inescapable financial sinkhole for all new owners. The Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun will no longer be printing on Mondays after the paper said in an article titled, Note to our readers, that it didn't want to anymore. However, the Post media chain is reassuring concerned readers not to worry. This change will have no impact on the paper's ability to debt service its foreign owner's conservative lobbying machine. Subscription rates will remain exactly the same, so readers can be sure they're paying their fair share to help Post Media owners pay less than their fair share. And not to worry, David Stables and Lauren Gunter's jobs are safe. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to start this week off with a bit of personal news as it relates to the city. That comes in the form of a CBC article that was published saying the future of Edmonton's solar rebate program is uncertain as funds run out. That's right. The program offered homeowners incentives to install solar panels and the city had allocated a little over $2 million in rebates this year and it ran out as of September 2nd. And it said there were more applications this year than in the previous three years combined. So lots of people, yourself included, looking to get some financial help to install solar panels. I tried very hard to get solar panels this year. And for the listener who hasn't been appraising themselves of the programs, it's actually really compelling. There's three programs in the city of Edmonton that make this a pretty great investment. There's the city of Edmonton solar rebate, which covers about 15 cents per watt. Uh, There's the federal rebate, which covers about double that. Uh, So all told in terms of rebates for a five kilowatt solar array, you can get about half of your installation cost paid for. That's pretty good. Yeah. Half is amazing. Yeah. So I did some quotes with some solar companies and in true numbers, 
for a house my size, which is 948 square feet, an old post-war house, Mm -hmm. a five kilowatt array, which would fill up the whole roof, would cost about $14,000 to install. About seven of that would be covered by rebates, meaning I as a homeowner would have to pay $7,000. Now that's still a pretty big ask. When you couple the new federal program, the Greener Homes Grant, it gives you a 10-year interest-free loan for greener initiatives. So what that means is you basically just have to amortize that seven grand over 10 years. And that payment is like 60, $70 a month. Previously, where solar, it's seven, 10 years before you are cash flow positive. You've made your money back. This time, if your electricity bill is more than 60 bucks a month and you can offset that with solar, you're basically cash flow positive after a month. That's a pretty big change, which I think is why people like myself were excited to engage in solar. Well, it seems like a great thing because it would help us meet some of our greenhouse gas reduction targets in Edmonton too, right? Removes a huge barrier for getting people to be more environmentally friendly. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, all most of those rebate programs, the bulk of the money is actually coming from the feds. So from the city of Edmonton's perspective, it's a pretty small investment for a pretty big return by leveraging these existing programs. Unfortunately, um, it's government programs. So while I have been trying for nice seven months now to get solar installed, I only very recently, a couple days ago, got approval to be able to apply for the federal loan. And at that time, the city of Edmonton rebate ran out. So we're getting there. These programs are very great, and I would be absolutely astounded if council opted not to renew this program next budget cycle. It was a Mm -hmm. very successful program, but we still have a long way to go, (laughs) as much as I hate to say this, in eliminating red tape. It was a very frustrating and difficult program to engage with. Well, hopefully, as you say, council continues to fund it and uh, things will improve in the next budget cycle, make it more likely for you and others to access those panels. There's no effective segue to transition, so we're just going to hard transition to the big news of this week, which anyone on social media will have seen the video that got shared very widely showing an Edmonton police officer pretty viciously shoving a woman to the ground uh, as evidence of police misconduct, police brutality. The Edmonton police, of course, defended themselves, alleging they had some CCTV exonerating themselves, uh, but they hadn't been sharing it all week. And the whole thing was whipped up into a fever pitch until this morning at the police commission meeting. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday when things seemed to de-escalate quickly. A little bit. I mean, the timeline here is that on September 15th is when this arrest took place. It was near the Hope Mission in Chinatown, uh, a little bit north of uh, downtown Edmonton. The video was shared over the weekend on TikTok and Facebook and all the social media platforms. And as you say, kind of took off. People, you know, really were aghast at this 12-second clip that showed an Edmonton police officer violently pushing a woman from behind to the ground. And the police put out a statement pretty quickly after uh, the uproar came about on social media and said that they had reviewed the situation, that there was going to be no need for a further investigation, that the woman who was shoved in the video uh, had been brandishing a knife, had indicated that she was connected to some sort of a gang, was not responding to the police officer's request to de-escalate, and that they felt this shove was the most appropriate use of force given the context, given the situation. And, you know, people then said, well, wait a minute, like, 
that's not what it looks like. I think if that's true, why don't you release the knife, a photo of the knife? Why don't you release the CCTV footage, something, you know, along those lines? Police, you know, again, came out, said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to release this until today, as you said, at the police commission meeting, when they did show commissioners roughly two and a half minute CCTV video, silent, but you can see the two women interacting prior to the arrival of the police officer. And then you see another angle of the shove that happens. And they also released a photo of the knife. So it seems like they could have released this information a week ago and really deflated the whole situation that became so heated on social media and in you know the broader media over the last week. Perhaps they had to run privacy checks on the CCTV footage, any number of administrative things. They could have said, hey, we plan to release this CCTV footage. It takes a few days to clear. Look forward to it at the end of the week. That, again, would have maybe not de-escalated it as much, but it would have been clear that the police were attempting to be accountable in the process. Instead, Mm -hmm. they took a very almost adversarial approach to the public and said, no, we're not investigating. We did nothing wrong and we're not going to prove it. And on top of that, because they decided in their second statement that they were not going to press charges against the woman, they said she was intoxicated, they processed her outstanding warrants, they gave her a meal, allegedly, and then decided not to press any charges against her. That means they did not have to release her name or any other details, which, you know, at the height of this uproar was... I think seen by a lot of people as another way that the police were kind of manipulating the the narrative to suit them, right? Well, it's like, of course, you're not going to press charges. Otherwise, you'd have to put some evidence out. It's strange that then a few days later, they decide to release that evidence anyway. Like, why wouldn't they have just done that earlier on in the process, right? I try not to be a conspiracy theorist. I really do. I don't think it's a good look, especially in the current modern times. But it's hard not to see this as intentional. Because if you go on social media today, what you'll find is a lot of posters looking at people like Duncan Kinney, at Tematope Oriola, at Tom Angle, the quote-unquote police critics, and saying, look, here's your comeuppance. You were wrong. I guess you shouldn't have stirred such a fever pitch about police accountability because there was a knife and you went through all this effort saying there wasn't a knife. If you are the Edmonton police and you are choosing a nefarious comms strategy with the intention of discrediting these people who you allegedly don't have a list of, withholding that evidence and acting in a way that makes you seem guilty, seem like you're hiding something in order to stir up this fever pitch before at the 11th hour releasing this stuff that you could have released earlier, that has a really potent effect of discrediting your critics when in fact your critics are saying there's a lack of transparency and this inflaming was because of the lack of transparency. It does seem like it could be a nefarious strategy that was plotted. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. In this case, you know, I don't think the folks you mentioned are all of a sudden going to stop tweeting about the police and, you know, stop being critical of the police. So if the strategy really was to try and shut them up, that's probably not going to happen. The other thing about it is What the CCTV footage that the police released today shows is that the statement that they put out about the knife and the woman and that the footage would show, you know, the broader interaction is roughly true. 
it doesn't do anything to dispel the other part of the criticism, in addition to the lack of transparency, which is that it may not have been appropriate. Was that the most appropriate use of force in that situation? They said, actually, at the uh, police commission meeting today that that is not the training that officers would have been given. So there's some questions about that. And I think it's fair that, uh, you know, critics will continue to ask for more information about that. It's problematic, of course, right, that the police get to decide whether or not they should be investigated. And the only sort of accountability we have is the police commission, who has been historically pretty reluctant to do any of that here in Edmonton. I want to talk a little bit about the other word that was used repeatedly this week, which um, at the start of the week, I believe I knew the definition of, but I'm not so clear on it now. And that's brandishing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, Troy, I know you do a lot of, you know, home improvement projects. You ever talk about brandishing a screwdriver or maybe you're in the kitchen, do you brandish a spatula? It's not a word that you use in any other context except to indicate that this person is a bad person and has committed or is committing some kind of a crime. It's a very specifically chosen word that the police use to say that this woman was brandishing a knife. Uh, It kind of creates in your mind this picture that they are bad and police are good. And it's part of the so-called copaganda that we often see come into play in situations like this, right? Where the police, it's in their best interest to put forward and to perpetuate this narrative that they're the good guys and everybody else is therefore the bad guys. And then if you look at the video, you know, we think about the word brandishing. It's not just holding a knife, right? It's like threatening, indicating that you might use the knife. And I'm not sure even the CCTV footage shows that, to be honest. Of course, the CCTV footage, while one of the cameras actually was shockingly clear, uh, I'm used to grainy security footage. Indeed. If we wanted to get a better angle of this and better understanding of what the officer himself saw and get into his mindset as he was making this decision to run counter to his training and perform this action, well, body cameras might be a good way to get that. And of course, as with every incident of alleged police misconduct, uh, the conversation around body cameras resurfaced this week. Yes, at the height of the of the uproar when people were calling for the footage to be released, I, you know, this discussion about body cameras came back up again. And maybe we should have body cameras on the police to be able to show this kind of thing in the future. If, if it's true what you said, Edmonton Police Service, then bring the receipts and body cameras might be a way to do that. I'm not sure if that's true. I've seen conflicting evidence about the efficacy of body cameras and whether or not they actually achieve the things they're intended to achieve. But what I do know, Troy, is that police service that already gets over $400 million a year from us shouldn't need more money to implement them if they think it's actually going to improve their service. And that's, of course, the very first thing that the chair of the Edmonton Police Association asked for, tweeting at Councillor Karen Tang. Yeah, if you want us to have body cameras, give us more money. And he listed all of the things they need money for in order to make body cameras happen. Conveniently ignoring, of course, that previous money for cameras was not used for that purpose. Yeah, previously, the Edmonton Police Service has had funding for dash cameras, which, incidentally, because if you look in the CCTV footage, the police car drove up and the dash was facing the woman with the knife. So, you know, a dash cameras also would have gotten us footage of this. The Edmonton Police, of course, hasn't added dash cams to all of their vehicles because the funding um, was spent on other things because EPS going to do what EPS going to do with their money. <laughs> Council cannot direct what money goes where. Yeah, $4 million was supposed to be used for the installation of dash cameras, which the police service said 
would be better than body cameras. They they said that would be a better use of the funding. They say now that there's been delays in getting the the necessary equipment or whatever, and so they shifted that funding over to some uh, digital records management system, which now allegedly is a precursor to having the body cameras in place. But it, it does highlight the point that it's an envelope of money. We can't do anything about the money once we put it in the envelope. And of course, the fundamental problem with body cameras is the police service still has control of the footage. Uh, Not only control of turning them off and on, uh, though sometimes regulation can help with that, but they control the footage. And in this case, DPS controlled CCTV footage that would have uh, de-escalated the situation, and they chose not to release it. So why should we, based on their past behavior, imagine that body cameras footage would be any different? Yeah, it's not like they're live streaming, right? And we get to see that footage. It's still a decision at some point along the way by somebody at the service to say, we're going to release this. Or, you know, maybe what happened in this case was a little bit of broken telephone and and some communication mishaps. I mean, there was an awful lot of uproar about this, lots of uh, media attention. I'm sure there were conversations internally about what to do. It just seems like they could have arrived at that decision more quickly. And as you say, there's no reason to suggest they would in the future just because we have body cameras. So it's questionable whether that will provide anything. Your your point about the dash camera is interesting though, right? Because in this case, the car was right there. It would, have, it would have had a really good view of the situation that happened. It wouldn't have shown the shove because that happened behind the car. A second police car comes crosswise at the end of the situation, pulling in real fast. So you would have had in the second dash cam, I think a pretty good view of the shove from a different angle and definitely the aftermath of it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, what the video shows to me, right, this 12-second video and and the longer two-minute video that was released is a dehumanization of the person that they're supposed to be serving here. It was a really violent push to the ground. I'm not sure you can look at that video and draw any other conclusion other than, was that the best way to handle that? Was there no other way to de-escalate the situation? It's not like the police officer drove up in the car and spent five minutes talking to the woman to try to get her to drop the knife and and uh, comply with his requests. It's a very short amount of time after he got up that he's pushing her to the ground, is then kneeling on her back, pulling her arms behind her to arrest her. It does really raise this question around what is an appropriate use of force. And at the Edmonton Police Commission today, they actually had a report on controlled tactics, which is the term for these uh, incidents where use of force might be uh, used and there's different categories. But the statistics from the Edmonton police are that use of force incidents are going up over the last three years. They use force more frequently now than they did last year and more frequently than they did in 2020. The instances in which they raise a firearm or point a firearm have gone up. The less lethal options like uh, potentially using a baton have gone down over the same three-year period. So I think these are important questions that are raised by this. It's not just the Maybe they should have released the video sooner. You know, why are they (laughs) doing this to themselves instead of uh, just being transparent from the beginning? It's also, there's clearly an issue of trust between the public and the police. And, uh, you know, there's bigger questions to be asked about what's appropriate. And I think the trust question is a pretty important one because it is revealing of why this all happened. There may have been a time in history where we saw this video and... We waited for the police response. We waited for the police to justify this action. We waited with the assumption that the police are inherently good and are doing what is necessary and we're going to wait for the full explanation and investigation. But that time has long since passed if it was ever true. 
police trust has been massively eroded in the past few years and over the past decade. And I think that is emblematic of why this response was the way it was. And now maybe this response saying with surety, the she didn't have a knife, the police are lying. Perhaps we were wrong this time, everyone who said that. But I think the reason why so many were saying that is still very, very true. We fundamentally had a police service putting out a response saying this person had a knife. And for a huge portion of the population, their response was, I don't think we believe you. And if you really think about that, that a massive portion of the population doesn't believe the police service when the police service says that this person had a knife in public, that's hugely problematic. Yeah, I'm going to disagree slightly, though, Troy. I would hazard to guess that we're in the minority here <laughs> and that the vast majority of Edmontonians did not for a second question the Edmonton police, did not for a second question that the woman had a knife or that what they did was appropriate. I saw comments online like, well, thank you, Edmonton police officer, for saving that woman's life. Like that was the conclusion that people drew. You look at the letters to the editor, the bot accounts, the social media comments, the comments on news articles. There's a significant number of Edmontonians who did not for one second have any hesitation about believing the police. I'm not sure we're in the in the majority. I think you're right. There are is a large and growing number of people who distrust the police, and that's obviously problematic. But I think if you're you know, a social media person working for the police or a communications person working for the police service and you're looking at the outcome of this week, you're seeing a lot of validation. People saying, I believed the police. And when the video was posted today, there's a lot of people saying, see, see, the police didn't lie. You know, it's a very valid and scary point. But I do want to talk about one part where we are in the majority, and that is in our disdain for convoyists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that was, of course, another piece of information that came to light this week, which was that Edmonton police spent $164,000 in overtime during the convoy protests. This was over the course of the protest held in January and February. While that number initially is pretty galling, CBC did some reporting and put together some charts that made this seem even more galling. Yeah, this information came from a 63-page report that was sent by the police service to Harun Ali, former city council candidate, community organizer, activist. He filed a formal complaint about how the police handled the convoy protests. That complaint was dismissed by the police chief, and Ali says he's going to appeal that decision. But in the meantime, we got this report, and, and CBC and many others looked through it. And as you say, they put that number into context, which the report doesn't do, obviously, but CBC did. So they looked at the number of protests from 2019 to 2022 and the cost of those protests. $164,000 in overtime for six protests this year just counting the convoy ones, is more than 473 protests in 2021, where the cost was only $82,000, and nearly as much as 2022, which was 200000 for 235 protests. So it really shows that we spent an inordinate amount of money in overtime for these convoy protests. And I saw the report, and I, you know, it was one of the first things that jumped out at me. It was like, why do we have overtime at all for these convoy protests? Like, do we not have police officers working on Saturday and Sunday? Like, what this is really bizarre to me that we have overtime in the first place. Unfortunately, yeah, the article and the report didn't really make clear why exactly 
we have overtime or what this overtime is going to. There were vague inclinations about, well, COVID has reduced our staffing abilities, so we needed to pay overtime for some reason. But there was no clear accounting of why overtime was being granted, nor why overtime was particularly warranted, especially given the other galling statistic, which is the number of violations that were issued. Now, of course, the initial convoy protests on January 29th, the the big one, where there were estimated to be 5,300 vehicles and 9,500 pedestrians in attendance, yielded two, traffic and noise violation. Subsequent convoy protests, which had 20% or even as low as 5 to 10% of the population, yielded 67, 209, 108 violations. Still a low amount of violations, but massively higher in proportion to the number of vehicles and pedestrians in attendance, but also related to the extreme pushback that the police was receiving at that point. This data does tell a story, and that story seems to be one where police officers were primarily paid overtime to shake hands, smile, and congratulate the convoyists on the street of Edmonton. Until the uproar about, you know, the continued noise and, uh, and traffic violations. And, and then in subsequent weeks, they started to actually do some enforcement. The other bit of reporting that is, I think, pertinent here is that, you know, you'll recall, and we talked about this on the show, the city was granted a court injunction, right, to prohibit the blaring of horns. And people were upset about the fact that the police didn't seem to be enforcing that. And these documents show that they didn't, actually. They chose to ignore the court order (laughs) for enforcement purposes and instead relied on the Traffic Safety Act and city bylaws. And so one of the reasons why there's potentially some more overtime cost here is because they decided to increase traffic enforcement, bring in new officers to be able to do that. So it does tell this story or, or illustrate this story that Police weren't doing anything about the noise and the honking and the problematic, you know, convoys until there was an uproar from people. And comments in the document to kind of support that too, right? Suggesting that EPS enforcement strategy was not aggressive enough initially, and they recognized that there was these many public concerns about it. Of course, there were documentation in these reports detailing an aggressive enforcement strategy and a plan for a rapid response to dispel protesters, but it wasn't convoy protesters. It was, in fact, the counter-protesters. Yeah, according to uh, University of Alberta criminologist uh, Tematope Oriola, who looked at the documents, he said the counter-protesters attracted far more punitive measures than the right-leaning freedom convoy folks. And he said what struck him most was the cumulative reverence and deference to the convoy protesters, you know, speaking to this idea of the culture of police. The documents show that the police were really quite concerned about the counter-protesters. And, you know, uh, they directed uh, staff to send police wagons and other resources to support a mass arrest protocol if activated. I'd say I'm optimistic that uh, this is the last we've seen of the convoyists. But unfortunately, if we look at politics, uh, we have a CPC leader who um, is broadly supportive of the convoy. And just this week, our former Minister of Justice in Alberta, Casey Madu, and the only UCP MLA in Edmonton, was thanking the convoy people for standing up to Trudeau's tyrannical COVID-19 restrictions. To say we have politicians emboldening these people for another round, I think is a massive understatement. I think it's warranted to scrutinize the police spending and the police budget in this regard. 
Unfortunately, we don't actually appear to do that very often. We, of course, the podcasters do. City Council and the Police Commission, not so much. But City Council is very apt to scrutinize and poverty Edmonton funding, which is potentially on the chopping block next week. Yeah, so council talked about um, increasing funding last budget adjustment for End Poverty Edmonton to $2.1 million. But it was a motion from Councillor Karen Tang to withhold 600000 of that pending a review. They wanted to make sure that what they're giving the End Poverty Edmonton that money for is actually being used and they're getting that the outcomes that they were looking for. So this evaluation is now done. It will be discussed by council next week. And it's pretty scathing, actually. It found that End Poverty Edmonton couldn't show the impact that it, it's making on poverty, doesn't have a way of measuring its success, uh, lacked involvement from, of people who have or are or who have been in the past uh, poor, and lacked clarity and transparency in its governance structure. And there's a clear lack of roles and responsibilities within the organization. So top to bottom, it sounds pretty problematic for this organization. But in the end, we're talking about a relatively new organization. We're talking about $600,000. And we have Councillor Karen Tang and others on council saying this is a major investment. And I think we really need to know what we're investing in. And I'm not opposed to scrutinizing these arm's length uh, city organizations. I think there's a lot of money that goes to these things. And we should be clear about the return that we're getting for it. But it's pretty rich <laughs> to hear council talking about how this is such a big investment. We've got to make sure we're getting our money's worth when they just continually approve millions of dollars for the Edmonton police with no equivalent scrutiny. Audits don't go forward. We don't get details on the budget. You know, no information about the, the amount of money that we're putting into police actually giving us the kinds of outcomes that it should. I really do want to draw that line because I don't know that I'm in a position where I want to defend End Poverty Edmonton as an organization. Like you said, the report was quite scathing. But it is the context with which we talk about this because End Poverty Edmonton is one of these organizations that should be addressing the root causes of crime, which is, as we all know, poverty, homelessness, drug addiction, all these things that are interrelated and the social determinants of crime. Those are the things that we need to address in order to reduce and detask the police. And yet, as we're talking about this, we're scrutinizing $600,000 for one organization, while with very, very little scrutiny at all, approving a $10 million increase to a $400 million organization that doesn't address root causes. And we have the mayor saying, we know they don't address root causes. Yeah, to be clear, you know, End Poverty Edmonton doesn't address them either, right? It's yes. not it's not a frontline service. It's kind of a middleman, an in-between, go-between. To be clear, End Poverty Edmonton doesn't have any measurable <laughs> goals or outcomes on paper. <laughs> well, let's, let's be totally clear about that, yeah. but continue. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it exists, I guess, the best purpose for it is advocacy. Bring together organizations, act a little bit as an umbrella, gather data, talk about how we tackle these broader societal problems and then advocate to the province and others to help us have the funding to go and do that kind of work. There's a role for that, potentially. I don't know if it needs to be a separate organization. I don't know if it should be to the tune of $2.1 million or, or, you know, the budget of End Poverty Edmonton, but it does seem like there's a role for that. And compared to the budget of the police, which we don't seem to scrutinize with the same level of detail, it does seem like 
we're spending an awful lot of resources on a pretty small amount of money. Also, $2.1 million, according to last week's episode, funds 30 units for opening of permanent supportive housing. There you go. Uh, I don't think what we need at this point is more advocacy and more researching the problem. I think we know what the problem is and we know what the solution is. Now we just have to pay for it. Yeah. Like the sponsor is paying this podcast to talk to you every week. And we've got a brand new ad for you. And it's from Connect First Credit Union. Take it away. Do you ever feel like just a number? A digit? A denominator? A decimal? Another cog in the big bank machine? Waiting on hold? Online? Never on time? And always on your dime? Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. And that's all for this week. We'll be back as we are every week next week. And we hope to see you there because that's how subscriptions to podcasts work. Please smash that subscribe button. Ring that bell. Click that app. Spotify that cast. (laughs) Ditch that er. Stream it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're... Speaking Speaking municipally. municipally.